Okay, well it's been a, a been a while since we uh, did the the Bible survey, but uh, we get back to it tonight, and we've we've got as far as Ephesians. So kind of like one talk on Ephesians. Obviously, people write volumes on Ephesians, so I mean, obviously we're we're just going to be taking the you know the big overview, um, you know, just to remind you because it's been so long when we started the Bible survey, you know, back when dinosaurs ruled the world. Um, we said that, you know, it's like going up in a helicopter and it's like sometimes you do Bible studies where it's like mapping out a road and you're actually walking up and down the road. It's that detailed with a Bible survey where we're in a helicopter, we're looking down and, and we're getting the big picture, but we're not getting a great deal of, of detail. So sort of like a, a, a commentary really um, on, on tape. Now, um, this is written by Paul to... Um, the Ephesians. Now, Ephesus was on the, the western coast of Asia Minor. Asia Minor is, is now Turkey. Um, and, and if you just moved a bit over, that was the, the area of Galatia. And, uh, and the last time we, we did Galatians. And um, Ephesus was the leading city in Asia Minor. It was the most important city in that region. And it was um, a major inland port. And there's the big river, Caister, comes in from the Aegean Sea. And so even though it was inland, it was kind of a, a, a major port and you know, a major city. And we know from uh, cross-referencing with Acts that Paul, the first time he passed through Ephesus was on his second missionary journey. And subsequently, later on, and we saw all these journeys when we did Acts, didn't we? Subsequently, he returned on his third missionary journey, and he stayed there for around three years. And, uh, you know, you can cross-reference that with Acts um, 19. And um, that was when he, he planted the church. And then in ensuing years, uh, he sent Timothy. There, there was trouble of various kinds. And uh, he sent Timothy. And uh, Timothy went there to kind of look after, um, you know, sort of like the church there for a while, sometime later. And uh, indeed, when Paul wrote 1 and 2 Timothy, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy at the time when Timothy was looking after the, um, the churches in, in, in that area temporarily. And, um, and then, of course, eventually, uh, in the Revelation, last book in the Bible, it got quite a serious warning uh, in a letter from, uh, from Jesus himself. Um, but this is kind of, you know, the main letter that we have. Um, and even though it's, it's called Ephesians, and it is written to the Ephesians, it nevertheless it has all the hallmarks of uh, what you might call a circular letter. Um, there were times when you know, a letter would be sent to one place and it would be circulated throughout the whole area. And, uh, and so I think that, that, you know, that when you read it, it's the kind of letter that was intended to be read in the Ephesian church, but also in all the other churches as well. And remember that in that same area, you had Laodicea, you had Smyrna, you had these other churches that had been planted. And, uh, and so it's kind of, um, you know, kind of, you know, it looks like a, a circular letter. Paul wrote it around AD 60. Um, he was under house arrest um, in Rome. And uh, to... The, the, the time period there is right at the Acts of the Apostles. Um, Acts of the Apostles ends with Paul under house arrest, hiring a house in Rome. That was when um, he wrote this, um, this letter. And uh, at the same time, in, in that same spell, uh, he also wrote Philippians, Colossians and, and Philemon. Now when we actually come to, to look at the letter itself, it, it doesn't um, address any specific 
particular situations. This is why it has all the hallmarks of a general letter. Um, it doesn't address specific false teachings. I mean, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote to, you know, he addressed situations in that church then. It was specific to them. To have written the letters to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, would have been nonsense. Uh, the Galatians, Paul addressed particular problems in a particular church. This Ephesian epistle isn't like that. And what it is, it's kind of, it's a broad statement of several things. Um, it's, it's kind of a general teaching thing. Um, and it's, it's largely, and we'll see this as we move through it and see how it unfolds, but it's a broad statement of what God has done for us in Jesus. And then he moves on and he deals with the fact that because of that, we are part of a church. He doesn't deal specifically with individual churches. He's just talking about the fact that we're part of the church, the wider body of Jesus. Obviously, that finds expression in local churches such as we are. But he's just dealing with you know, the whole thing about what the church is and the role of the church in spiritual warfare against Satan, against the principalities and powers. And we're also going to see as it unfolds a particular, I think we certainly mentioned this when uh, we were in Romans, but we're going to see it really clearly as we come into some of Paul's other epistles. And we're going to see a particular, if you like, literary uh, format that Paul uses. And, you know, and that will actually uh, become clear. And uh, kind of there, you get to the point in a letter where it's like the hinge that the door turns on. And suddenly the door opens, suddenly the point of the letter becomes clear. And I'll tell you when we get to that hinge, that pivotal point in the letter. Now, let's, let's, let's dive in in chapter 1. Now, the, verses 1 to 2, he just, you know, sort of introduces, you know, that it's Paul. Um, and he, he says, Paul, an apostle. Now, one of the things that you'll notice is that, for instance, if you go through the New Testament, you will never find Paul... Uh, kind of naming himself the Apostle Paul. Never. It's always Paul, an Apostle. And this is tremendously important because one of the things that Jesus forbade was titles. So any idea of Evangelist Fred, Prophet Barney, you know, Pastor Joke, you know, or whatever, is a complete nonsense because the, the whole point is it's a function. Paul's apostleship isn't a position that he holds. It's not some kind of, he's got an official position in the hierarchy of the church. There is no hierarchy in the church. It's simply Paul an apostle. He describes his function. But of course, this is vastly different. You hear Christians referring to the apostle Paul. Yeah, and that's completely, you know, like, you know, the wrong way round. And no, no titles. This is purely Paul speaking in terms of his function, of, of what God has, has, has called him to do. And he identifies the, the saints in Ephesus, that's who he's writing to. And as he usually opens up and ends most of his letters, he says grace and, and peace. Now, when, when we go, you know, the, the next section we need to look at now is verses 3 to 14. And, and, and just so you can get the idea, in the Greek, these are long, long sentences of appalling grammar where Paul is literally falling over himself trying to find another adjective for what he's trying to describe. And, and, and there's a real sense here in which Paul is packing so much in to a few paragraphs that he's literally tripping over himself. You know, this, this would be like, you know, sort of like a little three-year-old just running too fast 
for their body and I keep falling over. Because what he expresses is so incredibly cosmic and it's so compact. I mean, this is why you could write volumes on Ephesians. Uh, we're just going to tear through it at kind of, you know, the four-minute mile velocity. But it, it, it's incredibly, and, and it, it's one of the great almost cosmic statements in Scripture of exactly what God has done um, in, in Jesus. And then in verses 15 to 23, what he states, and we'll see it, you know, very briefly in a moment, he then follows it up with a prayer that they will then understand what he's written. And it's so dense and compact and important that unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to people, they're not going to get it. You see what I mean? There's just too much in there. So let's let's have a look. I mean, in verse 3, he says, you know, it's this is all done as... He's praising the Lord. He's saying, this is what God, you know, our, our Father has done. And he starts off by saying that, that he has blessed us in Jesus with every spiritual blessing that there is. Now, I mean, if you just take that thought, we already have everything we could possibly need, we already had in Jesus. Now, unpacking that is a lifetime's work of teaching. And there it is, just in one sentence. And then he moves on to say, right, now he chose us. He's established everything we've been given, it's there in Jesus. Why? Because we've got Jesus. You know these Russian dolls where you get a doll and you open it and there's a doll inside, and then you open it and there's a doll inside, right? There's lots of things inside the first doll. Every, you think you've got a doll, everything else is inside it. This is what he's saying. The moment we came to know Jesus, in Jesus is everything we're ever going to need. You don't need anything else. It's all there in Jesus. Now then, it needs unpacking in our lives. We're always looking inside and getting the next Russian doll, as it were. It's always being unpacked. And the Bible uses the idea of being filled with the Spirit for speaking about that in an ongoing way. But, but he's saying everything we've got in, is, is, is in Jesus. And he said, and God chose you. And he says, why? Why did he choose you? The reason is so that you can be holy and blameless. We're not just chosen to go to heaven. We're chosen to be made holy. Now, when we're glorified in heaven, we will be holy. But we're not chosen to be, you know, just carrying on in sin in this life and then just be made holy in the next. We're chosen to be holy and blameless. And that is really going to, you know, we'll be back to that when we get to these pivotal verses. And, uh, and he says, we have been predestined to be adopted as his sons. We were children of the devil. But because we believe in Jesus, God decides, I'm going to adopt them. And it's two things. I mean, we were born again, so we're literally children of God in the same way that Bethany is literally our child. But Bethany didn't exist before Belinda and I had us. So Belinda is only literally our child. But we existed before we were born again. So in another sense, we've been adopted. Bethany has only ever been my daughter and Belinda's daughter. But I was once Satan's son. Now I'm God's son, but once I was Satan's son. And this is what God has chosen for us. He's chosen us to make us his children. And if you love your children, what do you want them to be? Good. And that is what God has chosen us for, to make us good. And it says, in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now then, what is it that makes us bad? It's our pleasure and will. See? And, and, and what we're going to be seeing is, Paul, this, this, is, this is the main crux. God has chosen us for his pleasure and will. That's what predestination is all about. Yeah, obviously, it benefits us. We're going to heaven. It's the greatest blessing we could ever have. We're saved. We've been rescued from a godless eternity. But we've been saved and rescued for more than merely our own benefits. 
We've been saved and rescued for his will and his pleasure. He wants us to be good children. And then in verses 7 to 8, he moves on and says, look, this redemption, because that's what it is. Uh, Joel prayed earlier about being bought out of the slave market of sin. This is what redemption is. It's being bought. You, you redeem something that is, is in being held in some kind of captivity, and you pay the ransom, and you free it. Uh, you know, like going down the pawn shop, you know, you're, you're, you're hard, you know, you haven't got any money, so you take your nice watch, you know, down to the pawn shop and you get some money. But then eventually, when you can afford to buy it back, you redeem it. You redeem it. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the price so that we could be delivered, redeemed from the slave market of, of sin. And whereas Jesus paid the ransom for everyone, you're only redeemed when you actually come out of the slave market. Those who stay in the slave market, the ransom has been paid, but they're not actually redeemed. And Paul says, we have actually been redeemed. But he says, through the blood of Jesus. And he goes on to talk about the, the kind of, you know, that this is, is, he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. All this is because of God's grace. All this is because of God's mercy. And all this is because God paid the price. It costs us nothing. It cost him absolutely everything. And then he talks about that God did us, did this with all wisdom and understanding. And then in verse 9 he says, And he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And he said, and we know this. We know that this is true. Because that's the heart of what becoming a Christian actually is all about. And then in verses 9 and 10, he says, eventually, what's going to happen is he says, this will bring all things in heaven on earth together under one head, even Christ. And what he says, that God's plan is going to end up with a situation where everything in the universe is going to be under Jesus. Remember, when God folds everything up as we know it is now, he'll create a new universe and everything that was opposed to him, Satan, the demons, unbelievers, where are they going to be? In the lake of fire, outside of the universe. So to all intents and purposes, they don't exist. Because that is outside of the universe. So everything in the universe eventually will be fulfilled and under one head, even Christ. And this, this phrase, under one head, in verse 10. In the Greek, it's an accountancy term, and it means, it, it refers to figures in a column that add up. That, that's what the Greek word means there. And of course, the picture is that once God's plan of redemption has been completed, then whereas once Adam and Eve were perfectly at fellowship and at peace with God, sin came in and that destroyed everything. Eventually, what's going to happen is that everything will once again, like a column of figures on an accountant's broadsheet, going to be in order again. Everything is going to be in its proper place. For the first time since the fall, everything is going to add up properly. Now, we look at our lives and we see the opposite. We see that in our lives which still doesn't add up, which still isn't in order. And we're heading, our eternal destiny is being totally in order under God. What is the essence of sin? Being out of order. We, we say that, hey mate, you're out of order. 
That's literally what sin is. And it's this process we're going to see that it's not just a question of we continue totally out of order now until we die and then eventually it's all fulfilled and then everything's in order. The point is that God is bringing us more and more into order all the time. That's what he wants, you see. And again, in verses 11 and 12, he immediately goes back, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined. And then he says, you know, God who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. And so Paul reiterates, this is what we have been chosen for. We have been chosen to become his children and to become totally and utterly in our rightful place under Jesus, eventually along with the entire rest of the universe. Which would, of course, include all the goody angels and all believers throughout history, and obviously from our perspective at this point in time, it will include all the believers who aren't even believers yet, indeed who may not even be born yet. And that is what God has called us to. And uh, Paul, Paul goes up, you know, on, on to say that, uh, you know, that they were the first to hope in Christ. Because he's saying, look, and we're in effect, we're the first generation, aren't we? Because this is just AD 60. So, and he's saying, and wow, we, all together, we're, we're the first, okay? And in verses 13 and 14, he talks about, um, he says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. It was the truth that set us free. One night, the truth dawned on me about Jesus. But it dawned on me in such a way that I embraced that truth. It was all I wanted. It wasn't just the, a believing of an intellectual fact. It was something that, that, that you embrace with a, a, a total commitment. And he says, and this is quote he says the gospel of your salvation and then he says having believed you were marked in him with a seal the promised holy spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are god's possession to the praise of his glory and what he's talking about here is he's saying look you can be absolutely sure the mere fact that you have the holy spirit is a guarantee that you are going to get there it's a guarantee uh, regardless of how well or badly we do in this life, we're nevertheless still going to get there. This, this picture of a seal, in the ancient world, the, the, the king would have a signet ring, and if, if he kind of put something in an envelope, and it was going somewhere, it would be sealed with, you put hot wax on it, and his ring would seal it. Now, the point was, any, and, and that, that envelope could only be opened by whoever it was going to, and anyone else who opened it, it was death penalty. Now, the point is, a human king can't guarantee that a letter is never going to be opened on its way to his written it to. But the point is, God is absolutely all-powerful, and he can guarantee that. So the point is, the fact that we believe in Jesus, we are sealed, you know, as it were, the Bible talks about us being, our lives being hid with Christ in God. And so, therefore, it's absolutely guaranteed that we are going to get there. And uh, when it talks about uh, the Holy Spirit being a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance, uh, I mean, the, the, the Greek word there is arabon, and, uh, you know, sort of like in, in, in ancient Greek at the time of writing it, you know, it meant a guarantee, it meant a down payment as proof that the rest was coming. But in modern Greek usage, interestingly, a variation of that word, arabona, means an engagement ring. And elsewhere, Paul talks about the fact that we're betrothed to Jesus. And it's the point that when, when you're engaged, an honourable groom-to-be is not going to dump you. And Jesus is an honourable groom-to-be. So he will never dump the church. He will never dump anyone who has believed in him. And so there Paul talks about this security that we've got. 
we know that we are going to get there. This, this end that we're predestined to, to eventually take our rightful place in a universe completely in order under the headship of Jesus, that is guaranteed. If we're believers, nothing can stop us getting there. But as we move on, we are going to see that things can stop us getting anywhere in this life. Can't stop us getting anywhere, you know, in regards to when we die. We are going to be glorified. But things in this life can hinder. Now, in, in verses 15 to 23, Paul having done that, and it's only really if at some point you read those verses and really take them in that you get, I mean, there's so much condensed in there. I mean, you could, you know, sort of do, do lots of talks on every verse. It, it's so compacted and condensed. But in verses 15 to 23, basically, Paul prays that they will have a revelation of it. Let's, let's actually read it. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith and your love, I'll praise you some of this. He says, I've not stopped giving thanks, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's the reason, to know him better. Not, not understand doctrine more, although that has to be, but the end of it is knowing him better. If increased knowledge of doctrine doesn't get you to know Jesus better, it's a complete waste of time. All right, just head knowledge. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We need this. We're blind, you see. We're blind to ourselves. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints. He's restating what he's just said, but he's praying that they'll have a revelation of this from the Holy Spirit. And he says... Um, Sort of, and his incomparably great power working in us who believe. Now there, Paul's tripping over himself trying to describe the fact that we're full of the power of God. As we're going to go on to see, if we're full of the power of God, what excuse is there to not be living a holy life? See, And, and he says, uh, the power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. He says the same power that raised Jesus up from the dead and put him Lord of the whole universe, that is the same power working in us. And, um, you know, and he says, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. So Jesus is the head of absolutely everything. And there he's praying that we, because it's written to us as well, will have a revelation of that. Now, when we come into chapter 2, um, we'll read the first 10 verses. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's what we were like. That is totally what we were like before we were Christians. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. That's all we did. We lived for our sinfulness. A lot of it is disguised in self-righteousness and all that sort of thing, but at the end of the day, we lived purely to please ourselves. And he said, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. The point is, you didn't, you know, you, you weren't trudging along in your sinfulness, and you thought, oh my goodness, I really must do something about my sinfulness. I will seek God and seek a better life. No, no, no. You were totally, I was totally lost in sinfulness, having no thought, no desire for the Lord at all. And even while we were in that condition, he gave us the gift of wanting something better. 
you know, can you see, it wasn't a slow transition that we made, we were totally dead and he made us alive. It was nothing to do with us at all. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. And he says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. In the prior verses he's just said that Jesus was raised up, put over everything, and he says, we're up there with him. We share the authority of Jesus. We are one in Jesus. If I'm in Jesus, if, 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 if I've got a you know, pound coin in my pocket, wherever my pocket is, there is the pound coin. I am in Jesus. Where is Jesus? Well, he's up there as well as down here. So I am seated in heavenly places with Jesus. And, uh, and, and he says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness uh, to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves, it's by the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. And he says, so this was totally of the Lord, it was nothing to do with you whatsoever. This is purely God's grace and God's mercy. And what does he say next? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now that word, workmanship, in the Greek is poema. It's the word we get poem from. It's, it's a word which talks about a craftsman, the result of a craftsman's work, whereby the work of art is an expression of the artist who created it. And so what Paul is saying is yes, when we were brought into God's kingdom, we were totally and utterly sinful. That's all we knew, that's all we were, that's all we had. Okay? But now, what is it we have now? Well, what was it he said right at the beginning of chapter 1? We have every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Wow, what's the difference? So having been brought into the kingdom, whereas before it was just sin and selfishness, what should it be now? It should be living such a good life doing such good works that what that people see the artist in us can you see the point there that we are living expressions of god himself what was it jesus said he said that men may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven that's what jesus said that's the idea of the christian life people look at us and they look at us and they base their understanding of what we're saying about the Lord on how we live. I wonder what God they end up believing, looking at us. Elsewhere in Corinthians, we saw that Paul followed the theme about us being walking epistles. At the end of the day, the Bible that unbelievers read is our lives. What do they conclude about the Gospel from us? So in a sense, we're walking around and we can't escape saying, I'm a Christian, you're not, you too can be like me. Now, do people look on and say, no thanks, you're, you're in just as much a mess as I am? Or do they look at us and say, my goodness, what has transformed their lives? And this is what Paul is saying. Literally, we're like a walking poem. But what is our poem saying? Is it describing God or, you know, is it describing something else? And so here Paul introduces, the, you know, this idea that the whole point, as far as we're concerned, is good works. Now, when we come on to verses 11 to 22, what Paul deals with now is the fact that, that before Jesus died on the cross, basically, as far as God's people, the Jews, were concerned, there were two factions. There was Israel and the Gentiles. 
And Paul says what happened is, is that now God has pulled, he, he likens the Gentiles as being a man, and he likens, you know, sort of the Jews as being a man. And he says now there's one new man, and it's made of both of them. And of course what he's saying is that when you become Christians, every barrier that existed between human beings before is dissolved when you become a Christian. Because what you all have in common is Jesus. And he is so much more powerful than any of the things that might divide people. And obviously people get divided over race, they get divided over gender, they get divided over I'm rich, they're poor, or they get divided over I'm poor, you're rich. And all these divisions come tumbling down. And he says, literally, he describes every believer corporately in Jesus as actually being one new man. And he actually describes the church in terms of being, as it were, one new man. And he says that kind of it, it's, it's been built, um, you know, sort of like on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, i.e. that's the scriptures, it was the apostles and prophets who wrote the New Testament completing, uh, you know, the entire scripture. And of course that's the foundation because that's the only way we can know what God's truth and God's will is. And then he says, and Jesus is himself the cornerstone. So again, it's not just having biblical truth, although that is vital, it's having Jesus himself as well. But then having said that, it's not having, just having Jesus himself, which is vital, you've got to have biblical truth as well. Because the fact is, without biblical truth, you don't know whether you're following Jesus or an evil spirit. And the New Testament actually warns that Satan can get people believing in the wrong Jesus. We, we saw that in 2 Corinthians. So, you know, truth and a relationship with Jesus, that these two must always, um, you know, go together. And Paul says, and, and we're being built together into a temple, a holy temple. And of course, what was the idea of a temple? It was where the God that that temple was in honour of lived. So if we're the temple of God, what is the church? We've seen this before, it's Jesus' home, it's where he lives. That's why churches are house churches, they're based in a home. A church is God's home. Therefore, where's the logical place to have it? In the homes of the people who are part of that church. So it's simply God lives with his own people. He lives with his family. Church is family in every, you know, sort of sense of the word. Now, let's move into chapter 3. And, um, and he, he says that, that this, all this stuff he's teaching about the church, he said that he got it from the Lord. Uh, he says it's a mystery. Uh, that was revealed to him. And in, in the New Testament, when you get this, this, this phrase mystery, it's always a profound truth but that which has only been revealed in the New Testament but wasn't known before. So there's nothing of the church in the Old Testament. And there are various things, um, you know, sort of Paul refers to the fact that we're going to get glorified bodies as a mystery. If you go throughout the Old Testament, there's not the slightest hint that anyone's going to get a glorified body. But once you come into the New Testament, we get the whole picture. And so Paul says that this mystery of the church has been revealed to him. Now, let's, let's read um, the, the first few verses here. Um, no, verses, uh, yeah, read from verse 7 to 11. And he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace working in me through the working of his power. I am less than the least of all God's people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Now listen to this. His intent was that now, through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what he's saying is, that in regards to Satan, to the principalities and powers, and remember, he's already said that once we were subject to the ruler of the world. Obviously, we were once children of Satan. We were part, we were subjects of those principalities and powers. But he says that now through the church, God's wisdom is going to be made known to them. Now, just note, it's not God's power that is going to be made known to Satan. That's not actually needed. Do you remember something that Jesus said um, when he, after he cast out a dumb demon and he was accused of doing it through the power of Satan? And he says a very interesting thing. He says, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons. Now, I'll tell you why God's power doesn't come into it. Jesus cast demons out by the finger of God, i.e., he flicked them. There's no contest when it comes to power. God is, I mean, Satan, often people think that Satan's the opposite of God. He's not. Satan is nothing before God. So the issue isn't one of power. You know, God can flick Satan away. It's, it's not a question of power. It's, and, and, and if God wanted to just chuck Satan in the lake of fire now, he could, but he's chosen not to. He's making his wisdom known to Satan. And of course, God's wisdom is the exact opposite. What was Satan's wisdom? What did Satan think was a good idea? I'll be God. See? And so now, through deciding he was going to be God, Satan wanted to take the human race with him. So he got them being their own little gods. Now, the Lord is taking a people for himself who are loving him as their God and not any longer thinking of themselves as being little gods. He's actually demonstrating. This was what the book of Job was all about. The, the, the point about the spiritual warfare behind the book of Job is that the whole thing, God was demonstrating to Satan that someone could love him just for himself alone. Satan said, oh, if you take all your blessings away, he won't want to know you. So God said, okay, take all his blessings away. And Job did want to know him. And, and so we are actually walking demonstrations. We've come out from being the children of, of the devil. Now we're children of God. And it's our living of holy lives that demonstrates all the time the way in which God has totally outwitted Satan in what he tried to do. I mean, think about it. Uh, I mean, you know, sort of um, in Colossians, we'll move on to this in a few weeks, and uh, Paul there talks about, you know, sort of like uh, how Jesus, when he died, made a public example of the principalities and powers, the demons. Now, think about it. From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus told Adam and Eve that <coughs> the Redeemer was going to come, the Anointed One, okay? And Satan spent the whole of the Old Testament trying to prevent Jesus from being born as a man. And he blew it. He failed totally. He then spent, from the moment that Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, right for the rest of Jesus' life, even starting as a child, Satan then spent the next 33 years trying to kill Jesus. Eventually, he managed to do it. Only to discover that it was in him having Jesus murdered on the cross that our salvation was complete and his defeat was final. All the time, the spiritual warfare between God and Satan <coughs> isn't a battle of two kingdoms with big armies. It's a chess match, with Satan being outwitted by a chess master every time. It's God's wisdom being revealed to him. Now, if we read from verse 14 to 21, Paul goes back and is praying for them. 
And he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, he's praying this for every believer, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And then he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So where's he going? He's saying, and I pray that we will understand that this power that has accomplished everything that I've told you about in chapter 1, everything that God accomplished through Jesus, through his life and on the cross, and this power that raised him from the dead, this same power is at work in us. And he's praying that we might have a revelation of it, that we'll understand it. And the reason he's praying that is because in the next verse, when we get to chapter 4, and when we come to verse 1, we now get the hinge upon which the door of this epistle is swinging. And all we've done is knocked at the door. All we've done is got a picture, if you like, of the doctrine or the theology involved. Paul was not really very interested in theology and doctrine for its own sake. There's a reason for it. And let's now read verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, can you see now where Paul's going? And this pattern, this format that I said we're going to see him using in the epistles, not all of them, but a good number of them, is this. In the early part, he outlines everything that God has done in Jesus on the cross for us and outlines what that means for us. We're his children, we're saved, we're going to be glorified, etc, etc. But then he says, therefore, this is what it means for how you should now live. Can you see the point? He's not leaving it at, isn't it wonderful that we understand this, oh praise the Lord. He says, right, okay, now guys, the rubber is going to hit the road. This is what it's going to mean. Alright. And so he says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, understand this, that's a command. That's not a word of advice from a good friend. This is a command. We are commanded to live a life worthy. Now, if people look at us and say, goodness, something has transformed your life, alright, then that would equate to living a life worthy. If our lives aren't really much more different from non-Christians' lives, they say, yeah, 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 you know, you, you, your family's in a mess, you're what, you, you, just like the rest of us. That is not living a life worthy. But here, the pivotal thing is that Paul says, right, now this is what it means. This is what you must do. And the point is, he's taken away any excuse we might have. Because he's told us that we've got everything we need in Jesus. So there's no excuse for not doing what he now goes on to talk about. And look, and this is, you know, like his starters. He says, look, be completely humble and gentle. He's not now talking about what Jesus has done for us, is he? 
Now he's talking about what we're supposed to do. See? If we have the power that raised Jesus from the dead, if everything that he's just said about us, about what Jesus has done for us, if that's true, then he says, right, okay, now you be like this, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. Um, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all and through all and in all. And he says, that's the unity that there should be amongst believers. Why? Well, because if people are humble and gentle, I mean, who's going who's, who's gonna to be falling out with people? Who, who's going to be bearing malice? Who's going to be, you know, can you see? And this is the challenge that he presents to us. And then in verse 7, he says, look, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So we can be absolutely sure that we know that we have whatever grace we need. Whenever we say, well, okay, no, sorry, that, no, no, Lord, see? I mean, that's not being honest. The answer is, yes, Lord. He's given us the grace to do what his will is for us. And then he, he quotes from, from um, a psalm here, and, and he does this bit, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, this was a custom in the ancient world that when an army came home victorious, uh, they had the captives, the spoil, and what they would do is they would parade the spoil, you know, all the captured soldiers and that, uh, through the city, and they'd all give gifts to each other in celebration of the victory, you know, like at Christmas. And of course, what's happening here, and he talks about he ascended, means that he descended, and, and the one who descended has ascended higher than all the heavens, blah, blah, blah. And what he's talking about is that... The so you've got the, this army coming back and, and everyone giving gifts because of the victory. And when, when Jesus, you know, went back to heaven, went home having won the victory, what were the spoils? Who were these captives that he took in his train? Well, it's believers. And when Jesus went back to heaven, then all the believers throughout history who have been in paradise, which until Jesus ascended was in the centre of the earth, takes it back to heaven. All right? And so there's this great procession in heaven as the believers eventually get there. Heaven opened to human beings when Jesus ascended after he rose again from the dead. Heaven wasn't open to human beings before, with a couple exceptions. Enoch got there, Elijah got there, Moses got there. Possibly, possibly. But, uh, you know, but by and large, heaven wasn't opened until that point. Now, what are these gifts? Gifts get thrown around because of, uh, you know, like the victory has been won. Well, the gifts are what? Well, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. The gifts are the functionings given to people, given to us, to help each other grow in the Lord and be everything that Paul has said we're meant to be. So, so here he outlines these ministries, which are kind of like the travelling ministries that kind of equip churches and you know sort of help people to, to grow in the Lord and that. But the point elsewhere, Paul, Paul widens this out. You know, I mean, sort of he says that everyone has spiritual gifts. You know, it's not it's only for some. Here he he he, he outlines a you know a few, but elsewhere he outlines others. And the point is that we all have grace, we all have gifts whereby we can help each other and serve each other to be um, what we're meant to be. And he says that the reason for this, in uh, verses um, 14 uh, down to 16, is he says that we will no longer be infants. Alright, because when you're born again, you're a baby. Babies do all sorts of things that are cute, 
well, and even not so cute when you're a baby, but things you can get away with. But when you start getting older, you know, I mean, you know, sort of like, you know, when you get older, you're not supposed to be dirtying your nappies everywhere and things like that, you know. And that there are lots of things that it's okay for babies and it's okay for children. But as you grow, it's not okay for adults. And what he's saying, look, grow up, grow up. And he says, we won't be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Elsewhere, scripture says that a double-minded man, got one opinion today, another one tomorrow, last week, this is God's will. This week, this is God's will. The exact opposite. It's just all over the place, just tossed to and fro and taken in by the cunning and craftiness of men. Worldly thinking. You know, I mean, when you look at the Christian scene, how many people think Christianly? They might be Christian here and there, but look at the worldly thinking that there is amongst Christians. The world's wisdom, the world's way of doing things. You read through the Acts of the Apostles. The early church did nothing like the church today does. Does the church today really think that we're wiser than they are? The answer is yes. Because it's this worldly wisdom, this craftiness, this deceit, because people are unstable. And he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, and we'll be back to this, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. In a body, you can't have bits of the body that aren't functioning, or it damages the whole body. You know, I mean, if my leg stops functioning, the whole body is affected. And Paul's saying, and that's true of you. If you're a carnal Christian, if you're not going to grow, if you're still just messing around with all this baby stuff, carnal Christianity, still caught up in all the stuff that you're supposed to have been delivered from, you're damaging the body. He's saying we're supposed to be growing up together in Jesus. And look what he says here in verse 17. He says, look, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Now this is strong, this is strong. He's already said, live a life worthy, and that's a command. And now he says, I insist that you no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. The Gentiles, unbelievers, people worldly, that's all they are, that's all they have, that's all they know. The only thing that means anything to them are the things of the world. And Paul says, that is not how you're supposed to be. He says, they are darkened in their understanding. We're not. He says, they are separated from the life of God. We're not. He says, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. We are not ignorant. Our hearts have been opened. We're born again. So Paul's saying, so what on earth are you living like them for? Can you see the point he's making? In the light of everything we know, to be true, how can we still be living like um, unbelievers? So it's about sensuality, impurity, and uh, with a continual lust for more. Greed. A continual lust for more. Get, get, get. Never satisfied. In Philippians, one of the things, and we've come back to it again and again, is that the sign of someone who's in relationship with God is contentment. The sign of someone who's not is discontentment. There's that more they've got to have, see? And there they are, scrabbling for it. That is how the Gentiles live. And Paul is saying, that is not how we should live. And um, then he goes on to say, you did not come to know Christ that way. He says, you know better. And so he says, look, he says, you've been taught to put off your old self. He says, that's you 
before you're a believer. He says, put that off. And this is, this is a picture of changing clothes here. And he says, put on the new nature. I mean, Jesus has, has taken away our dirty rags and he's given us a robe of righteousness. And Paul says, so put it on. Put it on. He says, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what he said earlier. That's what we're predestined for, isn't it? To be like God. To be godly. To be how he wants us to be. And uh, then he goes on and he keeps defining it, bringing it out, what this actually means. He says, put off falsehood, speak truthfully. Don't tell lies. Don't be dishonest. That is not worthy of a Christian. Not because there's anything special about us, but because Jesus lives in us. Therefore, dishonesty is, in your anger, do not sin. So what he's saying here, there's just worldly anger. You know, I mean, most times people get angry, it's sinful. Because they're angry because something has affected them. Yeah, there's a righteous anger, but even then the sign of that is that you go to sleep at night at peace, you see. So anger, he says no. He says, don't give the devil a foothold. And the actual, um, you know, the picture here is, uh, you know, is, is, is don't give the devil a place. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's the word, uh, the Greek word here is topos, and it's the word we get topography from, like an area of the country. And, and you know, think of it like a landing strip. He says, look, if, 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 you, if you are like this, then Satan will just land in you. Simple as that. And then on top of everything else, you've got demonic strongholds in your life to deal with. You see? And, and so what Paul is saying, look, come on. And he says, look, if you've been stealing, don't steal. Work. Work. You know, he said, be, do something useful with your hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Right, beforehand it was selfishness, now it's giving. Work hard. Thieves don't like work, but they want things for themselves, so they steal. Now Paul says, what's the answer to that? Okay, get a job and then give lots of your money away so other people are benefiting from it and not just you. That's the answer to it. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. He says, that, that, that's not what we should be, but only what will build others up. Then he goes back. We already saw about the Holy Spirit being that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. All this grieves the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit has got nothing to do with um, holding back on the gifts of the Spirit. That's quenching the Spirit. Paul talks about that elsewhere. Grieving the Spirit is it breaks his heart when we're like, these, like what Paul's saying we shouldn't be like. It breaks his heart. It hurts him. He grieves over us when we're like that. He says, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, with every form of malice. Be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, in Christ God forgave you. This is the exact opposite to the life of self that characterizes the sinful nature, that wants what it wants and will get what it wants regardless of the cost complete and utter selfishness and he says be imitators of God now then who are we going to imitate well you could imitate your favorite actor although you'd be a right twit to do so you could Im well, you could imitate lots of Im imitate the Prime Minister or have all lots of but, but Paul says no Im imitate God be like him that's incredible, isn't it? And he says, Therefore, as dearly loved children, live a life of love, 
just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then he goes back to, to this, you know, now we're on the verses that, that um, were done on Sunday. And, and you know, he, he goes back to this list of things that should not be true of believers. Obviously, he says, not don't let there be a hint of being sexually immoral. And we say, of course, of course, or any kind of impurity, of course, who would disagree with that? Or of greed? Huh? Greed. Greed. Do we throw our hands up in horror at greed? Paul will be back to that in a minute. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity. Yeah, we say, yeah, absolutely. Foolish talk or coarse joking. Obviously, there that is wrong kind of joking. It's, you know, sort of like, you know, bad mouth. Which are out of place. But rather, thanksgiving. Now listen to this, for you can be sure no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Now that is not saying that someone like this is going to lose their salvation. In the Acts of the Apostles um, there was the place where they said through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. So this, this, this idea of having inheritance in the kingdom of God is something you enter into after you're born again. I mean, you're not, you, know, you don't get saved by going through tribulation, do you? Yet through much tribulation we enter the kingdom of God, i.e. we come into our inheritance of Jesus through tribulation. It's the trials and the difficulties that enable us to grow. But what Paul is saying here, look, if you're stuck on these things, if you're not repentant of these things, then you're not going to grow as a Christian. You'll go year after year after year and your life will be the same old mess. You will not be growing in the Lord and bearing fruit. And again we see no immoral or impure, oh goodness yes, no you're not going to grow in the Lord. Um, greedy. Greedy, there it is again. Why, why greedy? Don't we shrug our shoulders at greed? Isn't it alright to be greedy? Paul says that is idolatry. And when you come into the New Testament, what equates with idolatry isn't bowing down to the actual idols. That was like in the Old Testament. But think about it. What is idolatry? What is the danger of an idol in our life? An idol in our life is when we give to a thing what we owe to God. That, that's the idea of an idol, being a false god. And we, we should give the Lord our everything. You know, we should be going all out after the Lord. Now what is an idol? An idol is anything other than the Lord that we are going all out after regardless. That's what an idol is. It's that thing in our lives that is non-negotiable. I am having that and nothing is going to stop me. That is an idol, that is greed. And it's half frightening, you know, that sort of like something like that should appear in, in these lists. It's, and he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. See? Because we can kid ourselves so easily. And we're going to see more about that in a minute. And he says, For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, don't be partners with them. What he's saying is, unbelievers are going to end up in the lake of fire because of those things. Now, we have been rescued. We're not going to end up in the lake of fire because of those things. So he's saying, so how can we do them? You see the bush? Live a life worthy of what God has done for you in Jesus. He says, do not be partners with them. 
And again, if people were to scrutinise us, if unbelievers were to scrutinise us, would they say, your life speaks to me of the transforming power of God. I see in you what Jesus is like. Or will they say, hmm, can't see you any different from me, you're just religious. Partners with them. Because if they see in us these things that are fundamentally true of them, well, I mean, obviously, what Paul is saying, what is the point? He goes back, he says, look, for you were once in darkness, but now you are, you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So can you see, all the time, what he's saying is, what are you doing living like you were in various areas before you came to know the Lord. And he says, find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And then he goes on about, you know, saying, make the most of the time. He goes on about, you know, sort of like, don't, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. I mean, be, being filled with the Spirit is, is in some ways almost like the Christian counterparts when unbelievers go out and get drunk. I mean, they go out and get drunk because it makes them feel good. I mean, shouldn't we feel good that Jesus lives in us? See, shouldn't that be enough? And, and, and all the time, and he says, be filled with the Spirit, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, sing, make music in your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, contrast that with, you know, sort of like immorality in the dark. Contrast that with greed, with the moaning and groaning about what you haven't got, the lusting after whatever it is that you've just got to have. It's an incredible contrast. And Paul is saying that shouldn't be true of us. We now come to another tremendously important verse. And we're now going to look at other areas where Paul says, if the rubber hits the road, then this is how it's got to be. Because he says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now, why would he say submit to one another? Is he saying whatever someone else does, you've got to do? Well, no, I mean, he's not saying that, obviously, because elsewhere, you know, in his teaching, obviously he, he covers that that isn't the case. But this thing about submitting to one another, we've got to come back to the fact Paul has prayed that they will have a revelation of the truth of what he's saying. Now, one of the fundamental things about sin is its deceitfulness. And there are many, you know, I, I was saying this on Sunday, through the years, there have been many, many things that God has convicted me of directly. I have seen, he has indicated directly to me sin in my life that I have to deal with. But there are many, many other things that I was so blind to that I only came to realise they were true of me through what others said to me. Do you see the point? Because sin deceives us, our hearts are deceitful. And this is why Proverbs talks about how important it is to act on the counsel of a multitude of counsellors, not just to go it on your own. Because the point is, when we are out of fellowship with God in the air of our life, we give Satan a foothold, we're blinded. We won't see it ourselves. And so Paul says, submit to one another. Listen very carefully, because there are things that God is always doing in our lives that we're blind to. And it's going to be by what others who we love and respect in the Lord say to us that we're eventually going to get the message if we're open to it. So this is tremendously important. Submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. Because if we really do love Jesus, and if we really do understand that we're blind to things about ourselves, 
then if we reverence him, we are always going to make sure that we are correctable and our ears are open to the counsel of others. Can you see what he's saying? Otherwise, it's a sham. It's just mere words. Now, he goes on to other things which are incredibly foundational. And he now deals with what this means for the most important ongoing relationships in our lives. And he says, if you're a Christian, this is what it means. Wives, submit to your husbands. I'll read that again. Wives, <laughs> submit to your husbands. No qualification. You're following Jesus. Then submit to your husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Do I hear the screeching of rubber as it hits the road? But listen to this, husbands love your wives. Oh, I love my wife, I think she's gorgeous. Now hang on. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now what's he saying there? He says, husbands, you should not be thinking about yourself. Your wife comes first. But this isn't just, oh well, you know, my wife wants a new car, or my wife wants, you know, we've got to go to Barbados for 10 years, or, or you know, we've, we've got to have a new intercity wash. It's not, because this is a particular type of loving her. It's loving her in such a way that she grows in the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife. Now, giving up your life for your wife doesn't mean giving her everything she wants. She might want things that are wrong, that aren't good for her. But the point is, it's her and the family that motivates, not what the husband wants. Who was Jesus thinking of when he died on the cross? Uh, us? The bride? Who should husbands be thinking of in what they're doing? Their wife. Whatever is best to bring her so that she is growing in the Lord. And he says, I am talking about Christ and the church. You know, he says that this is a picture. There's no greater picture of the relationship between us and Jesus than a relationship between a husband and, and, and wife. And also, he does this thing about, look, a husband should love his wife as he loves himself. Now, why does he say that? Well, for exactly the same reason that in the Old Testament, it says, love your neighbour as yourself. Now, you get this nonsense about, oh, you've got to learn to love yourself. That's not what it's teaching. We love ourselves absolutely to bits. I need no help to love me. I think I'm that wonderful. Now then, that's no particular problem, as long as I'm loving others like I love myself, you see. And that's the point. But we love ourselves. So, and, and, and so, you know, kind of like only as we love our wives, you know, like, like Christ loved the church. And, and he says, look, this is where the rubber hits the road. Some more screeching to come now. Children, obey your parents. Uh, do you tell your friends you're a Christian? 
Yeah. Obey your parents. That's the proof. That's the proof. So I mean, you know, sort of like, so you know, if we say, well, you know, okay, I'm, 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 I'm 13 now. I say, oh, gee, God, what's, what's the proof that I love you, to all my friends? And God says, it's that you obey your parents. That will do more to demonstrate my reality than anything else. You see, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. You see. Honour where honour is due. It says that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, interestingly enough, it doesn't say here, you know, obey your parents and honour your mother and father because they're such great people. I mean, you know, sort of parents can be real jerks sometimes. But, but we're seeing wives don't submit to a husband when they think he's right. They're told to submit to him full stop. Husbands aren't told to love their wives as Christ loved the church as long as she's being the most gorgeous babe on the face of the earth. They're told to do it unconditionally. And children are told to obey their parents, whether their parents are seemingly very much worthy of obeying at any one moment or not. You obey them because they're your parents. Also, let me just chuck this in. Isn't it brilliant that here's a letter that was designed to be written to all the churches? So it will be read out in all the churches, all right? When it gets to this bit, Paul doesn't say, uh, parents, make sure your children obey you, because he assumes the children are there in the church. This is why we don't have Sunday schools. This is why we don't kick the kids out. They're part of the church. I just think that Paul expected the children to be there listening to the teaching, you see. And he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So again, parents, your relationship with your children. But isn't it interesting here? He just says fathers, not mother. And the reason for that is the father is responsible for the raising of the children in the Lord, not the mother. Now, the mother helps. Of course she does. You can't do it without her. And old boy, you know, sort of like she is the right-hand man, so to speak, with whom you can't do without. But it is dad's responsibility to shepherd and pastor the family, mum and the children, to teach them, to pray with them, to bring them up so they learn how to follow Jesus. So, family relationships, and Paul says if they're not right, you know, live a life worthy of your calling. Now then, uh, he deals with slaves and masters. Now, this, this would equate to the workplace. So whether you're an employee or an employer, and he says, look, slaves obey your masters. At work, have a right relationship with your boss. Uh, you know, but then he goes on to say, but you slave owners, remember you've got a master in heaven, don't be harsh with them. Can you see the point? So he, he's dealing with all these relationships, and he's saying, look, if, 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 if the life, if the character of Jesus is not showing in us in these areas, what's it worth? Where is the evidence? Where is this, you know, showing people that they may give glory to their Father in Heaven? If our lives aren't like this, they can't see our Father in Heaven in us, can they? Then he moves on and he deals with um, the, um, the whole thing about the armour of God. Now this is, this is kind of interesting because he says, finally, so he's summing up now, he says, I've said me bit, this is the last thing, he says, so I'm concluding, he says, finally, and he saved it for last, and it's really important. And um, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. There it is again. God isn't asking us to do anything he hasn't given us the power to do. But it's his power, it's not ours. But look what he says, he says, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now notice this, it's not taking a stand against Satan's power. We saw that earlier, 
God, God isn't revealing his power against Satan. I mean, one flick of the finger and Satan's down. No, he's revealing his wisdom. How did Satan undermine Adam and Eve? Cunning. Cunning. So God has outmaneuvered Satan. But what is Satan's tack against us? Cunning. It's schemes. He's out to deceive us. He's out to lead us up the garden path, but always in such a way that we don't realise it's him doing it. So here is our spiritual warfare. And remember, Paul is writing this um, under the constant 24-hour guard of a Roman soldier. So Paul has had plenty, he's writing this letter and he's, mm, yeah, and he's, he's writing down bit by bit all the parts of a Roman, Roman soldier's armour. And he's using it as a picture. And it's, he says, look, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And um, also in Isaiah, you get a famous passage about armour as well, and Paul's kind of combining that with a, the Roman soldiers thing. But in verse 11, 13 and 14, you get these phrases. Stand against, stand your ground, stand, stand therefore. What I want to show, this armour of God is all defensive armour. The, 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 the Roman sword or the Roman spear does not appear in this passage. I know you think it does, but I'll come to that in a minute. Everything here is defensive. It's stand your ground. This isn't attacking anything. This is defending ourselves against how Satan attacks us. So how do we defend ourselves? Well, okay, first of all he says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist. Now on the Roman armour, the very first bit of armour they put on was a belt. And this thing went round their waist and it, it attached tight. And all the other bits of the armour and all the weapons attached to it and bolted in, you see. So, so this, belt, this belt was fundamental. Without this belt, you haven't got any armour. And what he does is that Paul says, look, this belt that is fundamental to everything is the belt of truth. Truth. Do you remember what he said earlier? The emphasis on truth. And, and, and in the Old Testament, it talks about truth in the inward parts. And, and what he's talking about here is truthfulness. It's integrity. If, we, if, if, if you say, there's a man of integrity, you're talking about someone who is shot through to the core of their being with truth and honesty. Their word is their bond. And Paul is saying, this is the first bit that you put on. We have the truth of God's word. But more than that, unless we're taking that in and matching it with a truthful heart, standing against the deceitfulness of our own hearts, as it were. It's a, it's a kind of a, a contradiction. We, 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 we kind of defeat the deceitfulness of our hearts with this truthful integrity, this willingness all the time to hear the truth about ourselves, even if we don't want to hear it at that particular time. And he says, that is the belt. Then he says, the breastplate of righteousness. And we, we only have authority over Satan to the extent that we are living under the authority of Jesus. Uh, do you remember there's that, that, that story in the, the uh, in Acts of the Apostles when uh, the sons of Sceva, the Jewish exorcists, they had a go at uh, casting a demon out. And uh, the guy was demonised, beat them all up and tore their clothes off and sent them packing. Because they weren't, they weren't believers, they weren't under the authority of Jesus. And the demon marmalised them. Now then, some people in spiritual warfare, they use the name of Jesus like a charm. They say, oh, Satan, clear out in the name of Jesus. And that somehow Satan flees on hearing the name of Jesus. No, Satan flees when a believer is in authority over him. 
And a believer is an authority over him only to the extent we're under the authority of Jesus and living a righteous life. Remember in, in uh, I think it's Peter, when he says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil and he will flee far from you. But you can't just say resist the devil and he'll flee far, far, far from you. The verse is submit yourselves to God, resist the devil. That's where our authority comes from. And the breastplate, the breastplate protected a Roman soldier all his inward parts of the body. And if you get a spear or an arrow in your side, you're a goner. In your liver, in your pancreas, in your lungs, you're dead meat. And, and it's only a righteous life, or Satan will pick you off. You know, see, this armour is there because Satan can pick you off. We have seen believers who get picked off by Satan. They either end up falling away or they end up living a, a, a life of more religious mediocrity than out-and-out -out discipleship because something has waylaid them. Jesus warned about this in the parable of the sower, that things could come along that will shipwreck you. Uh, persecution. Some people, even, even having their friends laughing about them behind their back because they've become a Christian is too much, so they fall away. But more subtly, the cares of the world and the love of riches, this is the greed that Paul warns about, idolatry. That gets so many Christians. And all the time the weeds are growing up around our legs and unless we're chopping them down, one day they will get us. They won't stop us going to heaven, but they will stop us living a holy life and being a genuine ongoing disciple down here. So that kind of, you know, that, that, that kind of breastplate of righteousness has got to be on there. And remember that we see righteousness, we're not just talking about, you know, you've got to you know, make sure you're not sexually immoral. We see things like greed are in there. We've seen things like not being humble is in there. My goodness, you know, it's without those things, Satan can pick us off, render us harmless. And then he talks about feet, feet fitted. Um, hang on, let me get this right. Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful. The, um, the Roman soldiers had hobnailed sandals. They didn't have hobnailed boots, they had hobnailed sandals. And uh, so, so the point is that, you know, like football studs, and, and it gave them a grip. They could keep going. They were ready to move at any time. So even if it was slippery or snowy or icy or rainy, they could dig in and they could go at any time. And that's what Paul's saying. At any time, be ready, whether it's to witness, you know, sort of like an opportunity to tell someone about um, the Lord or whatever, or, or just the absolute firm footing of a life filled with peace because you're at peace with God. And, and, and the, that, then you're ready to go. But think about it for one moment. If there are things in your life where you're just all the time fighting against the Lord, you're not ready to go, are you? Because the Lord says go and you think, oh no, that means this. No, no, not available. See? And, and, and it's this peace, this being at peace with God, with it's not saying there are never struggles, but it means that the struggles end in victory and that they don't take forever either. Okay. And... Um, then it talks about the shield of faith with which to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And, uh, you know, it's sort of the shield of faith. Faith is unwavering trust in the Lord. I mean, one of the things we've looked at again and again, and it's not something that we find it easy to put in the category of sin, but worry, fretting, anxiousness, these things are evil. It's not trusting the Lord. And, and these flaming darts of, you know, that we use the shield of faith to put out, what are they? It's doubt, it's worry, it's, it's fears, it's what if this and what it's lying awake at night, 
you know, oh, what am I going to do about this? And, and it's ducking and diving, and it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of worrying about problems that might never happen, or forgetting that if they do happen, we'll have the grace of God to face them. The, these are the arrows, and we, we can waste our Christian life worrying about things. And I'll tell you, normally they're worrying about things that aren't important anyway. You know, and, and you know, the Lord is going to look after us. And so this, this shield of faith, this unwavering trust in the Lord. And uh, it talks about the helmet of salvation. And it's no use, you know, having you know, all your organs protected by, you know, sort of like the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness if you get an arrow between your eyes. And they did, it came down, you know, sort of like this big helmet. And that's our thought life. See, it, you know, sin, deception, it all starts with wrong thoughts. And we've got to guard it. Um, you know, sort of elsewhere, Paul talks about taking every, talks about demolishing strongholds. We saw this in Corinthians, taking every thought captive. Because Satan gets in, he drips in your mind. But he's very careful to drip in your mind uh, things that are what you are prone to anyway. You know, I mean, you know, he's not, he's not going to tempt Andy with an obsession of train spotting, is he? You know, because, I mean, Andy got delivered from that. No, but but, but he's, it will be the cat that fits you. He knows the areas of our lives where, where you know, our Achilles healed, so to speak. And so, all the time, bringing every thought into captivity. You know, often our, our harebrained schemes, schemes about God's guidance. That's why I bring it. Bring it to the corporate body. Do you know what I mean? Don't go it on your own. And all these weird ideas we can get. I've had so many weird ideas through the years. Still get them. And times when I convince myself that things are right when they're wrong. This is how Satan gets in. And all the time growing in our knowledge of God's word and, and keeping that, that, that helmet protected, uh, protecting our thought life. Now, the sword of the spirit. But, but you said, Beresford, that, 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 that this wasn't the sword, and it isn't. It's a bad translation. As well as the sword, the Romans had a dagger. And this dagger was for, for if, if someone jumps on you from behind or something, or you're going along and someone pops out, sometimes they dig little potholes, you couldn't see it. So if you ended up in close arm-to-arm -arm combat, you pulled the dagger. That was, it's a defensive weapon. It's not the sword that you go in there, you know, charging through a, an army or something. It's, again, it's defensive. And it, it's kind of the word of God. And this was, this was when Jesus was in the wilderness. Remember, he hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. And then Satan comes at him. And this was, I mean, imagine how weak Jesus was. And, and Satan just reminds him that he could turn a stone into bread. I mean, th that was the real wrestling. We wrestle, Paul says. And this is when you need the dagger. And the dagger, yeah, it's not, it's not kind of like the word of God in the sense of the entirety of the truth, although it implies that, but it was Jesus' use of the word of God that was just right for that occasion. So it, 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 it was when Satan is just on the verge of deceiving you and you've got just the right word. No, Scripture says. See? And immediately you dive behind the safety of what Scripture says. Always always making sure that we're not giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt when it's areas where we know we're prone to sin. You see what I mean? That's what the dagger is. It's just that word of God, just bringing out the truth because it's in the scripture, but it's gone into our head and because it's gone into our hearts. This is the revelation of the truth that Paul is talking about. And you see, Jesus' use of the word of God was incredible. You've got to know it. You've got to know the word of God to use it as a dagger defensively. But nevertheless, for every situation of temptation and deception and danger that we're in, there's the truth of God's word that is just for that. And that is what this dagger is. And then Paul says, I'm praying the Spirit at all times. 
all the time, you know, people call this arrow press, all the time, you know, re referring to the Lord and keeping him in our thoughts. And, uh, you know, then, then Paul kind of just winds up and uh, he tells them that he's going to sing Tychicus to them, um, who will be a, a, a blessing to them. And, uh, and, and then he, he ends by saying peace and, and love and grace to you all. So uh, there, there's Ephesians and uh, we'll, we'll leave that one there.